0: Hello there, it's Antris, and welcome to another episode of the Savvy Painter Podcast. This episode is sponsored by Gamblin Artist Colors. Earlier this year, I turned the mic over to you so that you could ask Gamblin anything you wanted. That was so much fun that we're doing it again. Robert Gamblin and Scott Gelatly will be answering your questions about color. Go to SavvyPainter.com forward slash Gamblin to ask your questions before January 7th. The Savvy Painter Podcast is published every week on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, iHeart Radio, and Google Play. If you are a painter or artist who is looking for down-to-earth, real-life conversations about art, how to create it, how to sell it, you are in the right place. Savvy Painter has been downloaded over a million times by artists in 150 countries. This is the place where you will find your community, you will be inspired to create, and you'll hear real stories from artists who are thriving with their art. So if you are new to this podcast, I want to welcome you to the Savvy Painter community. But make sure you don't miss an episode, sign up for weekly updates, free guides and workshop announcements. Go to SavvyPainter.com forward slash subscribe. It's that easy. Allison Gildersleeve is my guest this week. She's an abstract artist working out of New York. In this episode of the Savvy Painter podcast, Allison shares the pivotal experiences that shaped how she perceives her work and herself as an artist. While she worked as an assistant to the artist Joan Snyder, Allison couldn't help but be influenced by Joan's unrelenting work ethic. That work ethic was further reinforced by the community of artists she surrounded herself with in New York. Allison paints with layered images. In her work, she plays with time and space to capture the layered memories we can experience from just being in a certain place. She talks about what she learned while exploring these ideas at residencies in both Sweden and at the Vermont Studio Center. Allison talks about using drawings to get out of the safe zone, that comfort that comes with familiar painting habits. How her sister gave her a huge batch of paper, which Allison feels free to use without the guilt of going through material or needing to make something quote unquote good. This freedom allows her to explore so that when she goes to paint, she has a more intimate knowledge of her subject and can be more free. And in this conversation, we try to paraphrase Philip Gustin's quote, which I have since Googled, so I will now read it to you. Gustin, it turns out, may have been quoting John Cage. Regardless, it's a powerful insight. So here's the quote When you start working, everybody is in your studio. The past, your friends, enemies, the art world, and above all, your own ideas. All are there. But as you continue painting, they start leaving one by one, and you're left completely alone. Then, if you're lucky, even you leave. Just like Ellison's work, this is a multi-layered conversation. So here is Ellison Gildersleeve. Allison, thank you so much for being on the Savvy Painter podcast. I am excited to talk to you today. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me a little bit about how you started out as an artist you know specifically when you decided to become a professional artist as opposed to somebody who's kind of just doing this for fun
1: i actually think that i always thought of doing it professionally i mean i it i took art lessons from this kooky lady in her attic and she had bright blue eyeshadow up to her you know eyebrows and (laughs) big dangly earrings. And she would show us pictures of Picasso and, and she, I think I got sort of the bug then. And I knew when I went to college that that's what I wanted to do. Although my parents were pretty insistent that I needed something to fall back on. So I went to a liberal arts school and then I, I just knew it was something I wanted to do. I liked, I liked the puzzle of it and I liked trying to figure it out and I liked the materials of it. So I always, you know, I, I waited tables because that's what artists do. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I bounced around a lot. I didn't go right to graduate school. I, I studied in Europe for a little while. And then I lived in San Francisco. And and then I ended up at the Vermont Studio Center as our staff. And I it's a residency in Vermont. And I worked there for about a year. And I think that helped me meet other professional artists and be around. Before that, I didn't really have much of a community of artists that were doing it professionally. But I think I always, I mean, otherwise, why would I wait tables during the day? So I guess that's what (laughs) it was always something I knew I wanted to do. And I just kept trying to make my life work around that.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about what it was at the Vermont Center that kind of pushed you to, it sounds like it kind of pushed you to a higher level uh, in terms of how you saw yourself as an artist?
1: Yeah, it did. I mean, I, before that I was painting and and waiting tables. And when I was at staff, the studio center, it was the way it's set up, there are different visiting artists that come in. So there's a little bit of an instructional piece of it, as opposed to some other residencies and they come and do studio visits and they give talks. So you have this sort of tier of those artists coming in and then you have all these emerging artists and, you know, people applying all different age levels. And I was in my late twenties and there was a lot of people coming up from Brooklyn, which is where I live now. So it was fantastic for me. I had a, to work in the office to make some money, and then i they gave you a studio, and they fed you, and it was just being around artists 24 hours a day in this beautiful setting, and all the conversations were about art. and writers as well, and so it was a way to be totally immersed in it, and I came out of it with a real community, like from the Studio Center. I ended up being an artist assistant for Joan Snyder here in Brooklyn. So when I moved to New York, I had, I was working for an artist and then I had met a bunch of artists you know, who had come up to do their residencies there that lived in Williamsburg where I am now. So it made it easy to kind of move to New York City as an artist. Before that, I grew up around New York City and I would come into New York City, but most of my friends were professionals and not artists. And I, I couldn't conceive of how what that looked like to be an artist in New York. And I guess the transition from Vermont to New York was easy because I had a community of friends that were already doing that.
0: What were some of your biggest takeaways from that experience in terms of how, of how you, um, now that you had this community of artists, as opposed to I've been in that situation too, where a lot of my friends are, have nothing to do with the arts at all. So sometimes I get really interesting, kind of takeaways from them because they come at it with kind of fresh eyes. Yes. Yes. But there's absolutely something to be said for having a strong community of artists. So I'm kind of curious about what it was like when you did kind of take that leap, move to New York. What were some of the things that you learned from your community that you started applying in your own work or art business?
1: One of the things that was fortunate for me coming out of the Studio Center is I was hooked up with a job as an artist assistant for this woman, uh, Joan Snyder. And I don't know if you're familiar with her paintings, but she's a really gutsy, emotional painter. It really comes from a deep place in her, and she. But she, she's a really professional, hardworking woman, and she would just. Go out. She'd get up at eight, and she would go out there, and she would work all morning. She'd come in for lunch, and she'd go back out and work again. And so she had this real work ethic, and I really admired that in her. Like her out there in her studio, figuring it out every time and challenging herself every time. And then I was also around other artists who were doing the same. That they were, you know, everyone had some sort of day job or way to make money, but they were doing that. They're building their lives around being in their studio and finding good studio space and. Building their lives around that, and so I think that for me was eye-opening because before that I wasn't really in a community of artists, and it sort of was more viewed as a hobby or oh, wasn't, you know, you're an artist, and not taken seriously as a as a real profession.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like you, you know, are really fortunate to be around this group of people that are so committed. And I think it's a it's a subtle distinction, but it's an important one. I think a lot of times people try to fit their art into their life as opposed to fitting their life around
1: their art. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 No, that is, I'm not really a city person. I, I would love to be living in the country, but one thing I really value about being in the city is the community of artists. And I mean, there is something it's so hard here and it's so expensive here that it does sort of weed out. You have to kind of either go for it or, or not. And so, it makes. I mean, we're all like barnacles clinging to the <laughs> <laughs> to the rocks. But it because of that, it's there's a real seriousness to. It. And it's also because the the gallery scene is here, and there's so much going on here that the community of artists here and the and the seriousness of, what, of how people take their work is we're all kind of in it together. And I and I love that part of being in
0: the city. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me, was there a moment or decision that you made in your career that you feel like was a personal success for you?
1: I think going to Vermont was really actually a very positive decision for me because it did give me that community of artists. And I think everything that's happened in my career has sort of come out of my relationship with other artists. I was had two shows in Sweden and that was purely because I was in an artist group where a Swedish artist was visiting New York and she came to our critique group and I invited her to my studio and she liked my work and she it to her gallerist. And so I think anytime you're willing to put yourself out there and share your work with other artists, something always comes of it mm. somewhere. So I think if, had I not, gone to Vermont, I probably it was taking me longer. I mean, I also went to graduate school after Vermont. And that was a very positive decision. And I have a really strong community from that as well. So I think being a painter is such a solitary thing. And so you really need your community around you in order to keep it keep it going.
0: Mm, Yeah. What made you decide to go get your MFA?
1: I had gone to a liberal arts school without much of an art program and so I never really had the art school experience. I knew I wanted to go, and I think being in Vermont with the visiting artists and the different lectures, like I just knew that that was a missing piece to my education, and
0: Mm.
1: I didn't go immediately. I, I wanted to sort of live different places and do different things first, and then I ended up going to Bard, which is a program that happens over the summer, and I wanted that at that point because at that point I was in my 30s. i that the man I was going to marry or wanted to marry. And I didn't want to leave my life in New York and pack up and be a student again. And it, it, that program was incredible because it's intense. You just spend two months like talking about art with writers and musicians and artists and all disciplines. And it's, it's super interdisciplinary and you're just, you're talking to poets about your work and you're talking to for two months, you're just intensely, intensely talking about work. And then you come away from it and you have the rest of the year to kind of process that and work through it all. And then you go back deep into it again. Wow. Yeah, it was a really great, great program. And I was there when Amy Silman was there and Steen Westfall. And so it was just great balance of formalism and conceptualism and emotional, you know, not emotional, but intuitive were like all coming together at the same time. So I would say that was another really pivotal point for me to do that. Although it's taken years to undo all
0: that stuff. too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it takes when you have an experience like that, I think it takes so much time to sort of really process it, you know?
1: Yeah. It's like you're unpacking a suitcase and you have to pull everything out and look at it and go, okay, do I want that? Do I want to keep that? Do I want to put that back in? Mm-hmm. And it's, It's a very intense process to do that and and decide what you're going to keep and what you don't really
0: need anymore. What were some of the things about your work that you decided you didn't need anymore? That's a good question.
1: At the time when I entered graduate school, I was making these very sort of doodly abstract paintings and I liked what was happening in them, but they didn't, I wasn't as deeply connected to them as I needed to be. And around the, my last year there, my parents sold the house that I grew up in. They put it on the market. And I started painting landscape, which is what I'd painted as a kid in, in undergrad. I mean, I was very traditionally painter. My background's very traditional. So I kind of went back to that and started painting that place as a way to kind of let go of it. Cause I was, there was a lot stored in that place and I was, wasn't really ready to let it go. And I think through that sort of Going back to paint something, I, I I was painting something that I had a deeper emotional connection to, but I still wanted the abstraction and the stuff that was happening in the sort of doodly paintings. And so, one thing I took away from grad school, which isn't quite answering your question, but was <laughs> getting the process to match what I wanted the painting to mean. And I think that's something that I've really tried to keep. And so, I try to make the way I'm making my paintings be an important part of what you might take away from them.
0: Mm. Can you give an example of that, of how the process?
1: Yeah. When I was in Sweden, I got the opportunity to work with a printmaker there in Southern Sweden. And I had two children at this point. One of them had just turned one. It's a three-year-old and a one-year-old. So being away from my children and being able to actually just work in a studio with printmaking was just incredible. It was a thrill because I had you know, had at that point just been carving out whatever moments I could have to, to make work. So we were doing this process where I would take drawings, I would do a quick ink drawing on a, on a piece of paper and he would develop that into a plate and then we would layer the plates together. And in the beginning I would make a plate, he would print it and then I would try to fill in more information. So I would add the shadows or I would add a little detail. So each plate was sort of successively filling in the information and then as I sort of ran out of time but still wanted to keep making prints, I started just mixing the plates very randomly. And so suddenly I was doing, you know, it was a drawing of an interior mixed with the trees from an, a landscape. Mm-hmm. And that, those trees made the pattern of the wallpaper. And so that putting these disparate information together into one space really interests me because my paintings are a lot about how time is not sequential and how a moment from the past can feel just as present. And then everything gets kind of mixed up and there's no hierarchy sometimes of experiences based on time. So it, I liked that, how the sort of different things would sort of, one thing would come forward that wasn't sort of meant to, and something would go back that wasn't, that would assume to be forward. And so that's something I think that I try to play with when I'm making my paintings.
0: That is so interesting. <laughs> I'm just sitting here thinking. <laughs> did that make any sense? <laughs> Actually, it did. I was like, uh, you know, because I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, you can be sitting in the present right now and have these, these memories from any point of time in your life, from your childhood, young adult, anything that pops up and they do sort of blur over each other. So it's just really, and it may be because it's just thinking about, I just had this experience where there's this woman who's selling her house and um, it was it was her mother's home and just, you know, kind of all those emotions that come up when, you know, this place that you have such a strong emotional attachment to is suddenly going to be inhabited by somebody else, you know, yes, and it feels like yes. a kind of private That's Mm -hmm. your home, and and it's not quite an invasion, but it's also very strange, I would imagine.
1: It feels wrong. It feels wrong at first. Like, that's not possible. Like, someone else being your parent or, you know, it just doesn't – yeah, I think your home, especially where you have those early coming-of-age experiences, if you've lived in one place for all that time, it's really hard to disconnect those experiences from the place. They become part of the place.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your process now? It sounds like that printmaking experience, it was a pretty pivotal moment for you in terms of how you were creating your work. Is it the same now or how has your work evolved since then?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I'm always changing my process to figure out what I want to have happen in my paintings. Because I, I feel like Making paintings, it's kind of like trying to recreate a dream you had. And, and when you start to tell it, it makes no sense whatsoever, <laughs> but it was perfectly clear in your mind. And then so you start to lay it down on paper. You're like, no, that's not, was not it. That's definitely not it. So one thing I have done quite often in my career is switch to black and white because I love color and I love everything that happens with color, but it also masks some things where I can't really see like the bones of things and the structure of what I'm actually doing. So that's what I've been doing. I did when I was actually pregnant with my second child and I really couldn't fathom making a big painting. I stopped and just went to make these little black and white drawings because I wanted to figure out if I could put the figure back in because mm. I painted figuratively before. And I, there's always for me, a narrative element to my paintings that I don't know if anyone else sees but me, because for me, it's the narrative that's happening within this place and it's not, landscape. It's about the narrative of what's happening there. <laughs> and so I was toying with putting figures back in because that, that definitely makes it clearer This is about something besides landscape, which ultimately I decided not to do because I wanted, wanted me to be the figure or the viewer to be the figure moving around and not moving these figures around. But anyway, it going to black and white, I, you know, I did that. I ultimately decided not to use the figure. And then last year, when I was kind of feeling like I, again, was, I'm, I'm always sort of bouncing between these, the limitations of making landscape because there's something that's very accessible about landscape that becomes the only thing the viewer sees. And really, what I'm most interested in is the language of paint and what painting can do and what happened with those prints when you put two different images together, like it becomes something that can only exist on that page. And I love that idea of something that's only in the canvas and it's not in the external world. It's these two worlds coming together that make it interesting.
0: Mm.
1: I wanted to start I was sort of fascinated with botanical prints. My aunts have them hanging in their house and I like how kind of stuffy botanical prints are and beautiful. And so, and I had also been, I take a lot of photos in the summer when I'm not in the city. And I was looking at these photos I'd taken of, you know, weeds growing along the roadside. So I wanted to start using that. I found myself painting like these weeds and not the forest anymore, but just the weeds and the stuff that's under growing underneath. And then I realized I didn't really have my language quite down yet. So I gave myself this assignment of my sister had given me a big stack of paper and so it wasn't precious. And I just sat down with ink on the floor and, and painted these 22 by 30 drawings, just ink, you know, quick ink drawings to figure out what these weeds, like what the shapes were and what their language was. So I would really have it in my hand. So then I, when I went to the paintings, I would know it better than I was knowing it when I was making it. Cause I, I find the more structure I give myself, the better, the more abstract the paintings can be like the clearer I am in what I want to do, the more I can take it to a much different level and I'm not staying in a safe zone. So, so I made these drawings and I told myself I was going to cover my big studio wall with these drawings and I would do that. I couldn't paint until that was done. And then I had this like sketchbook on my wall basically that I could refer to. So I wasn't constantly running over and trying to find that drawing I made. And that was just Mm -hmm. sort of my backdrop as I made the paintings. And so that, really worked, and so i'm I'm trying that process. I mean I'm always I feel like I'm always going back to the drawing board <laughs> so I mean, that's kind of where I'm at now. I'm trying to figure out what my next move is, and so I'm going you know back to doing a lot more drawing to sort of figure out and in black and white just to figure out what what it's going to be next.
0: I love that idea of just taking the time to to just explore and sort of play without any quote unquote preciousness to it or, you know, without any consequence, I guess, in a way. Yep. And I think that's something that artists don't always give themselves time for. And or they get caught up in the materials of it. So I kinda that's such a great place that you were in that you just had this, you know, these big sheets of paper that you weren't concerned about, quote unquote wasting. You know, I think that there's so much of that in that worry, I think it's really hard. Yeah. And with a lot of artists, it's so strange because it doesn't, it, when you stop and think about it, it makes no sense at all, but I get it at the same time.
1: Yeah, no, I've, I've, even when I was doing those, I was trying to not make a drawing out of them because I have this tendency to, as soon as I put something on paper, then it has to be something that I could show somebody and just sort of, sketch, which I don't know, I don't. people don't maybe do as much or I, don't, I wasn't doing. I started now and I, I borrowed this from a friend, you know, after the election last year, and we're all obsessively checking our phones and our, you know, Facebook and trying to figure out what to do and checking the news. So he started to, when he would go to his studio, he had to do a drawing or make something before he could get on his phone and check <laughs> Facebook and news <things> And <laughs> And so I've tried to do that myself and I just bought some sketchbooks and same with the ink. Like I just try to make something and it doesn't matter what it is. It can be anything. It doesn't, doesn't matter at all, but it just gets me making something before I sort of check in with the stresses of the outside world. And then things come out of that because you're kind of turning your brain off a little bit. It's like free conscious writing.
0: Yes. I love that. Cause I do, you know, I love if we're talking about, you know, just first thing in the morning, I'm trying really, I get, go through these phases, I guess, where things can become habit unintentionally. (laughs) And so I'm going back now to, you know, I will not turn on the computer or I can look at my phone for just long enough to know, do I have any meetings or anything? Like, is there something on my calendar that I need to make sure (laughs) I don't forget? But other than that, just trying to delay getting on the computer for as long as possible in the morning yeah, and just yeah. be and just read or draw or write and, you know, do the morning pages, um, just that free form mm-hmm. kind of brain vomit, I guess,
1: what Yeah, whatever on that, your head. You need to Brain vomit and not, I was spending all that on my, on my phone because, and then getting just obsessed with all that's wrong in the world right now. And <laughs> so it was hard to sort of then sort of separate and get myself back into making something.
0: Yeah. And that I'm realizing that more and more, just how much the outside world really affects my day in the sense that if I start out that way, I'm anxious or, you know, the news is rarely good, right? No, <laughs> and I know. So- I keep checking for that.
1: I keep waiting for the good. (laughs) It's not there.
0: And so my day sort of starts off with this, like, you know, everything that's wrong. And it's, it's both that the mental part of it of, you know, I guess, or the emotional part of it is that you're just... You know, you pick up the phone and there's like just these mass fires in California and there's the politics and there's, you know, another shooting and there's this. And and I just get... And there's such helplessness because we can't do anything. Right. Right. And then, and I'm also starting my day kind of like allowing other people to influence me. And so I find that when I start the day on a more positive note with doing something like you're saying, doing something creative or just it comes from me as opposed to whatever the news programs or whatever somebody happened to post on Facebook, you know, it's, it's created intentionally as opposed to the random thing that I see on the phone. And I think that when you're, I don't know when you're so, when there's so much bad news coming at you, I think it affects Mm -hmm. your, it affects everything. And I kind of just feel like life is too short (laughs) every day kind of sad and depressed (laughs) yeah and well and it just it
1: throws it throws you off balance and it throws you off what it is you thought you were going to do that day yeah it's like it's so disruptive and and maybe that's also becomes part of what you're making or it's in a response to that but there's something about my studio used to be in my house for a long time. And that was great when I had kids when they were little, because they still have kids <laughs> when they were little. <laughs> it was great. Cause I could work while they napped and I could sort of work around their schedules. And then a few years ago I moved it out cause it was just, my kids are also pretty creative. And so everybody was just making stuff and there was, it was just too small of space for us <laughs> all to be making stuff. And so I moved out and I, there's something about sort of separating again, even all that home life and everything and just going to your studio where no one else is going to see what you're going to see except for you. And you're your own judge of everything. And I'm not going to repeat it correctly, but I found this quote recently and it was something that's, I can't remember who said to Philip Guston, but it was something like you're in your studio and first like the art critics, like everyone's in your studio and then they start to leave and it starts just to be you judging your work. And then, ultimately you leave too, and then you're just like making work. Yes. And there's something about really getting to that space where like every other voice is gone and you're just connecting with what you're making. It's really hard to do, but that's when, that's when you're really engaged in what you're doing and not phoning it in anymore.
0: That is so, I love that quote too. I don't, I can't paraphrase it any better than you did, but it's so true. It's so, and it's so brilliant that if we can get to that place where everybody leaves
1: yeah yeah including your own judgmental yeah. <laughs> you know? especially Which your voice for me is very hard to get rid of <laughs> yeah very that's
0: the you were of. mentioning artists as barnacles I think our own judgment is also sort of these yeah. barnacles that are just so difficult to scrape off and allow ourselves to get out of our own way yeah it's very easy to be in your own way This episode is sponsored by Gamblin' Artist Colors. A few months ago, I had Gamblin' Artist Colors founder Robert Gamblin and Pete Cole, the president of Gamblin' on the Savvy Painter podcast to answer your questions about oil paints. We talked about studio safety, oil painting mediums, and best practices for everything from using cold wax mediums varnishing a painting to choosing the best white and apparently you have more questions like this one my name is rachel jones of rachel jones and art and i have to say that i really appreciated the points that were made in the last podcast concerning whites and how we sometimes work against what the whites are made to do and just end up wasting paint because we're trying to make it behave in a way that it really shouldn't I was wondering, are there any other paints that maybe we may be wasting our time that really have a certain character that we are trying to make it act in a way that it shouldn't? So Robert Gamblin and Scott Gelatly will be answering her questions and yours. If you have questions about pigments, I wanna get them answered. We already have a few good ones like how to use opaque and transparent colors to the greatest effect and which blacks are best to use for your specific purpose. So what do you want to learn from the experts on color? I'm turning over the mic to you. Just go to SavvyPainter.com forward slash gambling to ask your questions before January 7th. I cannot wait to hear from you. I'm curious if you have any advice for artists who have young kids. I get a lot of questions about this of how people manage their time with, with young kids in the house. And also, I mean, I would especially would love to hear it from you because when artists are in that stage of their lives, it can feel, I think like it's never going to end.
1: Yeah, it does. (laughs) (laughs) The good news is it does. Actually, I found for me in some ways, having kids really focused to me because I had to hire somebody to take care of them. And when I was paying to make my work, it was suddenly a different equation. Like mm. I didn't I didn't want to fritter around and look at online or or do laundry. I didn't want to do anything but make my work if that's what I was paying someone who was making then more than I was making at that point. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I could make my work that <laughs> didn't sell. So I think that part of it was really positive for me. And it was harder when they were younger. And I remember when I had, when I had my second one and I think I mentioned before the artist that I met that lived in Sweden who ultimately showed my work to a gallery. And at that point I was at a, a studio crit of, you know, a group of us going to look at somebody's work and it was a good friend of mine. So I went, but I brought the baby with me and I was like nursing him half the time in the hallway. And I was like, this is, this is not going to work. Like I'm never making work again. This is terrible. <laughs> but the thing about that stage where it did feel like it was not I wasn't going to be able to do it again is that it is really short. And I remember my mom saying that to me, like, it's four or five years when they really need you. And then now my kids get to school in the city on their own. I don't have to drive them in anymore. I don't have to come back. So in some ways, I mean, it, it, it definitely, it focused me and it also gave me perimeters of when I could work and when I couldn't. It, it mm-hmm. turned me into... You know, now they go to school on their own, but before that I would drive them to school, I would drop them off, and I would get to my studio at eight because I wasn't gonna go home in between. And so at that point my studio was in Bushwick and I was the only person in the building working at eight thirty in the morning. <laughs> 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 Everyone show up at like when I was leaving and then I had to leave at a certain point because I had to go pick them up. But it makes it made me more focused because otherwise I can fritter away a lot of time. Yes. You know? I mean, the downside is in that time period, I wasn't able sometimes you just need to sit in your studio and do nothing and stare and be with it without trying to make anything or be productive about it. And I think in some ways, maybe I was trying too hard to be productive and Mm -hmm. make something. So there, I guess that's the, maybe the downside of it, but.
0: Yeah. I think that's very common for artists who are parents that, The amazing thing about it is not just the kids. It's that there's this fear that by having kids, you're not going to have time to paint or you won't, you know, you lose part of your studio life. And it, it seems like every single artist that I've asked about this kind of says the same thing that it forced them to become very, very structured in a, in a good way.
1: Yeah, I think it I think it does. I mean, you do lose a ton of time cuz they're sick and you have to stay, yeah. you know. You you lose a ton of time having kids. But my friends that don't have kids, I don't know in the end if they get that much more studio time because life gets in the way no matter what, whether you have kids or not. Yeah. And you know, it's all it's all just part of it and figuring out how to work around that and and making also I think your work match the life that you have. So if affording a big studio isn't, isn't in the cards for you, then you figure out how to make work that doesn't need a big studio. Mm -hmm. Or if you have to work in, in short bursts of time because of your children, then you, then you make work that, that works around that. Right. I think that's something I've learned later and I want to even learn more, like to make my art what I want it to be and also make it work in my life the way I want it to,
0: to be. Yeah. Yeah. I love it's a it's a complicated conversation, I think, in some ways, because it's like the thing is is that we all have a life and something will always I don't know if get in the way of your art is the is the right way to put it because it there's this it feels like there's this sort of expectation that if you're an artist then you should be able to work unencumbered and if you can't do that then I don't know. It's like there's something wrong with you or you're not committed or something. Right. Or, or you not
1: serious enough. Yeah. But the fact is, is that
0: learning to create your art among the chaos of your life is being an artist. You know, like you, can, you can't...
1: <laughs> it, it, it is. I remember visiting this artist, Christopher Brown, when I was like in my early 20s. I went to a studio and he said something like, you know, there were other painters that were way better than me in grad school, but I'm just still doing it. And that really kind of stuck with me. Like I might not be the the best of my group of grad school, you know, but if you're able to, if you can keep at it and if you can keep showing up and you can figure out a way to show up, whether it's in your living room corner as what some of my friends do, or in your giant 6,000 square foot studio, some of my friends do like, you just have to show up and be present for it and make it happen and, and tell yourself that's a priority, but it doesn't mean you have to, you're going to be given this gift of unencumbered time unless you want to live at Yaddo or McDowell or <laughs> those residency programs. Cause it's never going to happen. I mean, if it's not your kids, it's your, your aging parents.
0: It's something, there's always yeah. going to be something. Yeah. And, and that's part of what I think feeds art is the life yeah. that we have outside of it. I don't think you can be an artist in a vacuum
1: no, they're, they're similar animals. Although it does sometimes feel like you're in a vacuum when you're spending all this time. <laughs> <laughs> I used to feel very comical. Like, I would go to my studio and I'd open my little box and I would make my work and then I would close my little box and go back to my life of picking up my kids. And, you know, and for a while, until I had a show of that work, like nothing came out of that little box <laughs> except for what I was making. Nobody saw what was in there. <laughs>
0: <That's> so funny. <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is making me wonder, do you have rituals when you go into your studio or habits, things that you do to start your, your time off?
1: Yeah. I mean, I as I mentioned before, I've been trying to really start drawing right away. And so make a drawing or something. But usually when I come in, and this is one thing that I like, that's different from having my studio in my house. When my studio is in my house, I would look at my paintings all the time even when I wasn't working and I'd be constantly making those mental calculations in my head of like what needs to be fixed and what should stay and and so I'd be working on them without actually working on them and when your studio's not there I come in the morning and it's like I greet them all and go okay well you need definitely need this and actually you look pretty good and and that I should maybe turn against the wall so you get a little distance from it so you can see it more clearly and so I really like that part about it. I also, this is a different problem, but I have this tendency and it's like the New England in me of if there's any paint left on the palette and I have to go, I would smush it on somewhere because I got to use that paint. I can't possibly leave it on the palette. <laughs> and I would screw up a lot from doing that or I would try to fix one little thing that was bugging me when I didn't really have time to do it. So I wasn't doing it properly because especially, you know, with my kids, I'd have a certain end point where I had to go. So I started pressing paper against my canvas to kind of blot them out so I could move things around if I had to leave before I was sort of done with a layer. And I also liked the different mark it made. It sort of changed the mark that Mm -hmm. I made. I like it when there's sort of interference between my hand and the canvas. And that's where, the me, the process becomes more like a call and response where I'm reacting to something instead of just my hand Putting something projecting onto the canvas. I want it to be a conversation between me and the painting. Mm. So I was pressing paper against it, you know, just newspaper that I, you know, the daily paper that they hand out for free in the city. And then I got these big sheets of synthetic paper called UPO, and I was pressing that against the canvas. So I started to. I cut it the size of five foot by five foot canvas, and I would press that paper against it, and then I would turn and clean my palette. So. I couldn't fuss with whatever was sort of wrong or I couldn't put up that leftover paint on there and then just as I left I would pull it off so then I would have the impression on that paper that I could also work on
0: oh, and then the gosh. painting would have
1: been changed and so it became again this sort of dialogue and if uh, probably if I was a more uh, organized, I'm pretty ADD. <laughs> if I'm an organized <laughs> painter. I would really create a show out of these two impressions and really have this like direct one-on-one dialogue between the two things. And they didn't really come out that way because I kept pressing that paper onto a different painting, and then it would become something totally different. But it's a process I do when I draw. I tend to draw, and I say draw. It's like colored inks on on paper. But I tend to press the paper on the paper underneath just to blot it so the ink won't run, and then mm-hmm. also then I have this impression on the next piece of page to work
0: on so so you've got all these mono prints going on.
1: yeah, it's almost like mono printing off my drawings and then off also now my oil paintings and then working off those different impressions and the different marks that come out of it and the way it changes the texture and the stroke of the paint, or then I lift it up and print it somewhere else on the painting. So there's like a remnant of one part of the painting on another part of the painting. I love it. Those are all the things that I love that happens in paint. Like I'm much really at the end of the day, I'm interested in the paint itself. I'm kind of a painting geek and like what, what happens. And that's what I look at in other people's paintings, like how they're put together and, and what different ways they got the paint on the canvas that creates a space or creates a dialogue. And, you know, in some ways i I feel almost hindered by my subject matter, but I have to paint something because I'm—I I, just—I need to something concrete in the world to at least bounce off of to start with. Right. I'm giving you really long-winded answers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm eating it up. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind at all. Between, maybe. <laughs> it's like one
1: run-on long sentence. <laughs>
0: Well, that's why it's a conversation and not, you know, printed. (laughs) We don't have to worry about grammar. (laughs) Read my statements. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So we talked earlier about, you know, some of the things that were a personal success to you on the, on the flip side of that. Can you share a story when you encountered a setback? And the reason why I asked this question is because I think it helps other artists to know that everybody sort of experiences these setbacks. And most often you'll get 20 people who are like, oh, my God, I thought I was the only one.
1: Right. Well, I mean, are you talking about the countless rejection letters?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a very good one to start with, because (laughs) that is huge.
1: (laughs) Well, aside from all the things that I apply to that I don't get, I had a, an actual setback last spring where I I finished up a show in New York, and then I had another show back to back. And so I did that work, and that one was in Denver, so I shipped that work out. And then I got news that we, I was losing our studio space, and so I had to move. So I packed everything up, and um, packing your studio oh my for God. me anyway is, is it's a really – I mean, Short of being a sculptor, packing up a painting studio, it's just it's so disheartening because you're just going. Through, there's so much stuff to being a painter, and then there's all these paintings, these fail paintings, like stacks and stacks and stacks <laughs> of paint, <laughs> fail paintings, and then stacks of good paintings that just never went anywhere, or from graduate school that I haven't quite gotten rid of yet. And, th- and then you're moving to another space that in my case, I was paying a lot more for. And so I'm like, why am I moving to make more stuff that nobody wants? So we went through all that of like, packing everything up, moving things to the new studio. And I'm like, coursing my husband into helping me rebuild painting racks. And you know, it just takes a long yeah. time and it's really difficult. And then the day after I got everything set up, and I was really happy to be in this new space, because I friends now in the building. It was slightly less isolating than my old space, I'm a little closer to home so I don't have to get on the subway. I was getting something out of the loft space that was in the studio when I was using a ladder that had been left behind and it was like a two by four nailed together number and it broke and I fell and I broke my elbow. Oh my gosh. And so that was last May and it's taking me until almost last week to start actually painting again. I mean, I Took about six weeks to recover, and I was away for the summer, and then so I've been doing like little drawings, and you know this here and that, but not really like on the canvas making a painting. And so, all told, it's been about seven months, I think, of of not painting wow. in the way I was continually painting. And so, that has been really interesting. It's been really interesting to try to get back into it and just even remember all the different ways. I mean, it's sort of like riding a bike, but maybe it's not like riding a bike. Maybe I won't remember how to do it. <laughs> and so <laughs> there might be, I think there'll be new things that come out of it because I'll be kind of forgotten my old habits or not. I can, I cannot not try to slip back into my old habits, mm-hmm. but then there's also this kind of like, I don't even know what to do in here, you know, sort of feeling. So
0: yeah. Picking up the train of thought that you left behind. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I mean, my friends sort of
1: tease me, but I struggle with so much self doubt in almost everything that I do. And I, is this really it? I don't know. Is this going to work? I don't. I just. It's to me. Maybe this isn't appropriate, but someone was saying she was talking to a friend who stopped being a painter and just you know opened a store or something, and he was like, now I don't have to feel like an asshole all the time. <laughs> think about that because you being an artist you have to so much like prop yourself up and tell yourself you're good or you're not good or in the last you know two months when I got back from the summer I was asked to give a slide talk which I actually hadn't done before I talked about my work but I'd never done it in an image formal yeah and laid it out that way and then I was also applying to something where I needed to really kind of go through my whole career trajectory and when you look at your work like that, for me, I flip between like, these are really good. Oh my God, these are terrible. Like you just go back and forth between what, what am I doing? You know, Mm -hmm. I also think there's the paintings that I think I would want to make and the paintings that I actually do make. (laughs) And so sometimes reconciling those, like I'll, I'll never be a minimalist painter as hard as I try. It's just (laughs) not in me. (laughs) But boy, I would love to be. (laughs) so there's trying to reconcile i guess at a certain point you wake up and realize like okay this is this is my work just like this is what my face looks like like this is this is who i am
0: yeah and accepting that and and learning to love it it's it's hard i think artists we are called to be what we do requires so much introspection and it requires so much confidence in who we are and what yeah. we have to say and there's not you know outside of the arts there, there aren't any, I can't think of any other, aside from maybe being a, a psychologist, that requires that much.
1: I know, that much self. I yeah. heard it, I'm going to paraphrase this wrong probably too, but it was, it was something that Lady Gaga said, and she was thanking, I think it was even like an Emmy speech or something, and she was thanking everyone, and also saying like, to be an actor you have to sort of be a child like you have to put yourself back in that like child frame of mind in order to become somebody else Mm
0: -hmm. and as a result
1: you also act like a child right because you're you're putting you're stripping yourself down so much to inhabit another role and I think you know artists too like you have to strip yourself down to this emotional level in order to make your work and then still be able to build yourself back up so you can leave your studio and be a you know functioning human being in the world. Yes. And trying to flip back and forth between those two faces can be really challenging. Yeah, it is. Not to excuse any infantile behavior, but like we have to you have to do both. You have to be able to do both.
0: Yeah, and it's hard.
1: <laughs> yeah. But the reward's but what a great thing to do too. Yeah. <laughs>
0: mhm. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I was just going to say.
1: Yeah, I I think I feel very, I remember my mom saying, very few people get to marry the person they want to marry or get to do what they want to do in your life. And I feel like I got to do both. Like, you know, I get to do what I want to do every day, even though it's hard.
0: Yeah. What advice would you have for yourself, the artist that you were 10 years ago? So I figure somewhere around 2007 ish.
1: I'm in my late 40s. So you mean when I'm in my late
0: 30s, it all kind of blurs together. (laughs) (laughs) So we're about the same age then. if I
1: was doing that much different
0: (laughs) 10 years ago? Would it change if it was 20 years
1: ago? Yeah, 20 years ago feels different, but how would it even be different? Well, having my kids be older, you know, 10 years ago, it was hard to see that. And giving myself, which I think I mentioned before, the space to not be productive and to not have everything I make be something that could be like framed and put on the wall, and allowing myself to just sketch for me and for nobody but me, I guess. But I don't, I, I want to hear what my advice would be now from my 50 year old. Because <laughs> I probably need that now. Uh, you know, maybe also. <laughs> I was gonna say, like thinking more about where my career was going, but it, it's all you know. When I had little kids, I've just kind of responded to whatever it was. I guess getting myself to slow down, probably, and really, and maybe that's. I keep waiting for the silver lining of breaking my arm because everyone says there is one, but I haven't gotten there yet. I haven't gotten that sentiment, <laughs> But Maybe, and everyone said, "Oh, now I can slow down." And I was like, "Well, I was planning to slow down, but not with a broken arm."
0: Right. That's not how I wanted to do it.
1: Yeah, I think maybe just taking more time to really think things through. And maybe this isn't the advice I'd give my 10-year-old self, but it's the advice I want to give myself now, is that i really paying really close attention to my process and not letting myself fall back into what's comfortable and trying to just keep pushing it. I think I'd like to do that. That's great advice. I visited this artist studio recently and actually the studio visit from another artist probably about 12 years oh probably about 10 years ago and I should I still want to take his advice and that was both these two artists make very abstract loose work but their process is actually really deliberate and slow and one of them would make collages and then these very abstract collages of ripping up paper and then he would grid the canvas out and and reproduce that so he was reproducing something so the ultimate thing was very abstract, although he was doing it in this very representational way. Another artist I went to visit recently, he would set he sets up like dioramas of his work and lights them, and then he paints that. But you would never know, looking at the painting, that that's what it came from. So mm. he was kind of working with his own skills. Like he was a very representationally trained painter. He was a very good painter. He showed me you know, a figurative painting he had made. Like his His technical skills were great. But he wanted to make something that was abstract. It wasn't he didn't want to paint the figure. So he found a way to work within his own his own skill set. And I, I always admire painters that do that. That like when you see their work, you can tell that they found a way to make the paintings they want to make. And that's something I'm always trying to challenge myself to do.
0: Those are such interesting ways of working. That's incredible. Yeah. A
1: figurative painter, right? Like you're painting from plein
0: air, right? Yeah, yeah. It's I do both. I do a lot of plein air painting and then a lot of studio work as well. But I just I love that idea of sort of taking your strengths and then kind of like a Rubik's cube, you know, just kind of messing it up a little bit, and but you still have what you started with.
1: Yeah, I think that's. I mean, I I'm a pretty in some ways. I have some. There's an ease to some of the technical stuff that I have and I don't want to always fall back on that or it's very, it's, it's sort of easy for me to sometimes put certain colors together and make it look pretty Mm -hmm. to get around that and to, to really choose why I'm using certain colors and really base it on something instead of having everything like the more, I always think the more structure that's behind something, the more clean and clear it is on the, from the viewer's point of view, it's less garbled in a good way.
0: Yeah, I'm a big fan of structure so that you can be unstructured, <laughs> you
1: know? Yeah, but I that does not come natural. Like, I am no. very, much very impatient. I'm very messy. My studio gets totally messy, and I love it that way. I'm fine with that. <laughs> so for me to – I feel like whenever I can sort of force myself to stick to a structure or a program, it's like walking out the diving board a little bit farther. So then when, you, when I do jump off, because ultimately I can't stick to it anymore – I'm coming at it from a different place than if I had just started with my usual starting point.
0: Oh, that's a great image. Very cool. Allison. thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Savvy Painter podcast. Once again, thank you so much to Allison for sharing her insights and processes. Go to SavvyPainter.com for the show notes for this episode. You can see Allison's work there, find links to connect with her and get links to all of the other artists that we mentioned today. If you know another artist who would benefit from this episode, please share it. There are so many layers to this conversation. There's such good insight in there that I'm sure you know somebody who will benefit from it. One more thing I want to let you know. This year, you can expect a lot more workshops from Savvy Painter. If you are an artist who struggles with getting painting time in, or feels like you're always busy, but never really moving forward with your art, then my workshops just might interest you. Past workshops include Mindset Mastery, a five-week online workshop to help you get past the roadblocks that keep you from painting. In it, we tackle the inner critic, fears of artists, and setting yourself up for a successful creative day. The workshop, How to Develop a Relationship with the Right Gallery, helped several artists find the right gallery and show their work. So if this is something that interests you, you can go to SavvyPainter.com forward slash workshop and get on the email list. This is separate from the main list that tells you when a new episode comes out. This is just for the workshop, so you don't get quite as many emails, but when you do, there's always something really good happening. Sign up now and get a downloadable PDF with case studies that tell you exactly how three artists pushed through barriers that were getting in the way of their studio time. You can, for example, learn how Rhonda went from not wanting to call herself an artist to getting her very first solo show. Also listen to an introverted artist describe how she built her confidence and then spoke in front of an audience of her peers. And you can discover the tools that Samantha used to take back her power after a decade of believing that she had no, I'm putting air quotes there, she had no talent. So again, go to SavvyPainter.com forward slash workshop to reserve your place on the list. When you sign up, you get that downloadable case studies that I mentioned, but more importantly, you get exclusive invites to upcoming workshops. Most of the time when I launch a new program, it sells out before I ever announce it publicly. So reserve your spot now at SavvyPainter.com forward slash workshop. Until next week, this is Antrice Wood with the Savvy Painter podcast. Thank you so much for listening.